I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have with us this evening Lauren Elkin and Brian Dillon. Um, Lauren Elkin's a critic, a cultural commentator, and an editor for the White Review. Uh, in September, she'll take up a post as lecturer at Liverpool University. And in the meantime, her new book, Flaneurs, Women Walk the City, is just out from Chateau and Windus, the book we're here to discuss this evening. On Lauren's right is Brian Dillon, uh, the editor of Cabinet Magazine, whose most recent book is... Um, the Great Explosion, just out in paperback from Penguin. Um, Brian's a, a regular at these things and, uh, and a treat, and it's, it's a joy to have him back with us. Brian, Lauren, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here to talk to Lauren about her book. This is a book, Flaneurs, that mentions many bookshops, this one included, and also Shakespeare and Company, where uh, Lauren runs um, a fantastic series uh, of talks, which I was uh, very, very pleased a couple of years ago to, to be part of. So it's very nice to return the favour and ask some questions about Flaneurs. Um, as I'm sure people know, or at least partly know, Lauren's book is uh, a very rich and varied, not memoir, we've just been <laughs> discussing uh, the urge not to call your book uh, a memoir, but it does have autobiographical elements. It's a work of scholarship, um, a work of reading literature from the 18th century onwards. It's a work of uh, cultural history, urban studies. It's an extremely rich and very well written. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit later on about the writing and about the kind of style, the kind of tone uh, that you uh, adopt in the book. I think that we have a sort of notion that because the book talks about London, New York, Paris, Tokyo, Venice, that we're going to do this city by city. We're <laughs> going to do a sort of uh, grand tour um, of the places that Lauren writes about alongside uh, the women writers, artists, etc. Um, that she writes about. As a structure, this might fall apart really quickly, um, but we're going to give it a go. But first of all, Lauren, I think you want to read from yeah. early on in the book. Yeah, I can read a bit. I, I have one of those like tragic summer colds, so I'm really sorry. I, my voice is like a little bit going in and out, but I've got my strepsils, so I'm set. 
Um, so I'll read a little bit from the introduction to sort of lay out the sort of general idea about the flaneur or the flaneuse and what that means and what I'm doing with it. And, you know, we'll sort of take it from there. So we start with a pronunciation guide. Flaneuse, with the, the little transliteration you've got on the back. Flaneuse, noun from the French, feminine form of flaneur, an idler, a dawdling observer, usually found in cities. That is an imaginary definition. Most French dictionaries don't even include the word flaneuse. The 1905 Littré does make an allowance for flaneur, euse, qui flâne. But the Dictionnaire vivant de la langue française defines it, believe it or not, as a kind of lounge chair. <laughs> is that some kind of joke? The only kind of curious idling a woman does is lying down? So this usage, the lounge chair usage, um, began around 1840 and peaked in the 1920s, but continues today. If you do a search for flaneuse um, on Google Images, the word brings up a drawing of George Sand, a picture of a young woman sitting on a Parisian bench, and a few images of outdoor furniture. So the argument against there, there being a flaneuse is one that has been made um, often and loudly, uh, both inside and outside of the academy. And it sometimes has to do with questions of visibility. It is crucial for the flaneur to be functionally invisible, writes Luc Sant, defending his own gendering of the flaneur as specifically male and not female. This remark is at the same time unfair and cruelly accurate. We would love to be invisible the way a man is. We're not the ones who make ourselves visible in the sense that Sant means, in terms of the stir a woman alone in public can create. It's the gaze of the flaneur that makes the woman who would join his ranks too visible to slip by unnoticed. But if we're so conspicuous, why have we been written out of the history of cities or walking in cities? It's up to us to paint ourselves back into the picture in ways we can live with. So then I went researching through, you know, literary history as far as, you know, my own personal like abilities and languages and interests could take me. And once I began to look for the Flennes, I spotted her everywhere. I caught her standing on street corners in New York and coming through doorways in Kyoto, sipping coffee at cafe tables in Paris, at the foot of a bridge in Venice, or riding the ferry in Hong Kong. She is going somewhere or coming from somewhere. She is saturated with in-betweenness. She may be a writer, or she may be an artist, or she may be a secretary or an au pair. She may be unemployed. She may be unemployable. She may be a wife or a mother, or she may be totally free. She may take the bus or the train when she's tired, but mostly she goes on foot. She gets to know the city by wandering its streets, investigating its dark corners, peering behind facades, penetrating into secret courtyards. I found her using cities as performance spaces or as hiding places, as places to seek fame and fortune or anonymity, as places to liberate herself from oppression or to help those who are oppressed, as places to declare her independence, as places to change the world or be changed by it. I found many correspondences between these women. They all read each other and learned from each other, and their readings branched outward and outward in a network so developed it resists cataloging that I tried to do it in a footnote. <laughs> the portraits I paint here attests that the flaneuse is not merely a female flaneur, but a figure to be reckoned with and inspired by all on her own. She voyages out and goes where she's not supposed to. She forces us to confront the ways in which words like home and belonging are used against women. 
She is a determined, resourceful individual, keenly attuned to the creative potential of the city and the liberating possibilities of a good walk. The Flanus does exist wherever we have deviated from the paths laid out for us, lighting out for our own territories. Before we start to think about the cities specifically and the women who have walked them and written about them, this seems a book that's been a long time coming. It seems to have a long origin story that begins with you growing up in Long Island, Mm -hmm. moving to New York. And am I right in thinking discovering the idea of the flaneur Mm -hmm. in a way that is probably familiar to lots of people Mm -hmm. in recent decades who've studied literature Mm -hmm. and studied cultural history, that it arises out of a certain kind of confluence of Walter Benjamin, Mm -hmm. uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Baudelaire, uh, and so on. I I remember very, very clearly reading that kind of constellation of Mm -hmm. of writings as a student in the early 90s in Dublin and thinking, I don't have... There aren't the resources intellectually mm-hmm. and aesthetically available to me as mm-hmm. a, an 18-year-old in Dublin mm-hmm. to do this. There's something aspirational mm-hmm. about it as a figure. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it had that for you to begin with mm. as a student and right. whether there was a moment... Was there a, because it, t- you tell a long story about coming mm-hmm. to the point where the flaneuse mm-hmm. was a figure that you could write about. Was there a moment where that opened up? Mm. Yeah. Well, just as a little parenthesis, I'm interested that you, you think you, you didn't have the resources to be a flaneur as a student in Dublin. In Dublin, what, what I know. What resources know. Would, were lacking? What did you need? Um, I need, needed to have read Ulysses, which I haven't yet. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Essentially. Got it. Yeah. So it wouldn't have occurred to you to like, walk the streets of Dublin you know, in a wandery kind of way? Um, it seemed as if it was uh, a figure that came so loaded with mm-hmm. a Parisian uh, oh, imaginary, right. um, that it was impossible to inhabit at the, yeah. in the late 20th century, okay. even if you were male and urban, mm-hmm. and right. somehow that was open to you. Yeah. So I just wondered oh, whether, so whether that reading tipped you mm-hmm. easily mm-hmm. into thinking that it was something that could be reconstructed, mm-hmm. that the, the, the women writing this mm-hmm. experience could be reconstructed, right. or was that a struggle to arrive at yeah. that? Well, point, sort of, for, for yourself and uh, yeah. for yourself as a person living in New York mm. and, uh, and as a thinker, as a student and a writer. Right. Well, it was kind of the other way around because I went to Paris um, as a junior in university, you know, my third year of university, and just did flannery, like, without knowing that I was yeah. doing it, you know, because that's, I guess, something about the city of Paris must just suggest that to you. Like, these streets are just so interesting and lovely to stroll and everything's so close together and look at the light, you know. This kind of universal, okay, not universal. I have a lot of friends who who come to Paris from London and say, and say like, confidentially, you know, I don't really care for Paris. Everyone loves it, but I don't get it. So I don't mean to claim that's a universal, but many people who love Paris have the same sort of, you know, feeling of love for the light and the streets and the buildings, etc. We all know what that is. Um, so I had that when I was 19 or 20 or whatever, and it was only after I'd had that that I came upon, you know, Benjamin and, and mm. Baudelaire and, and all of that reading um, in a senior seminar that I took back at Barnard for my fourth year of university um, and was like, oh, that's what I was doing. That's what that is. That's called Flannery. Mm. So I thought sort of naively, well, um, okay, this is, this is the term. This is how people have talked about it. Um, I've done it. Surely there are other women who've done it because I was at Barnard College, which is a women's college, it's the Women's College of Columbia University, it's all girls, um, you know, I, I went in a kind of 
disaffected Long Islander, and I came out, you know, raging feminist. It was the first time I heard of Simone de Beauvoir, like the first time I read Wolf. It was Bernard was very important for me. So um, in that senior seminar, I thought, well, okay, I'll look at the women who've written about walking the way that these men have written about walking, and found that while I did find a lot of instances of that, you know, Wolf and Reese among them, the sort of critical discourse around flanoserie was sort of unanimously against the idea that there could be a flaneuse. Um, and I found that really problematic. So that, at the time when I was you know, 20 or 21, I couldn't find that opening to turn it around and make it um, you know, carve out room for a flaneuse. But when I finished my PhD in 2011 and thought, okay, I'm done with like, what I have to do. I've written my dissertation on you know, women's writing in the 1930s. What do I want to write now? What feels really urgent? And so I went back to that that senior thesis that I didn't write in, you know, 1999 and wrote it, well, started writing it in 2011. In some ways, the, the, the Paris that you describe discovering is, mm-hmm. is a kind of mid-20th century or early mm-hmm. 20th century Paris. The cafes that you hang out mm-hmm. in are the cafes that the existentialists hung out in mm-hmm. or that Barth later on describes. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you're describing a belated mm-hmm. experience, but it leads you back past the early 20th century and to Georges Sand mm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, why is she so important for this story? She was so sort of explicit about how much she loved walking in Paris. And I also came across a lot of these, these feminist art historians and, and um, scholars talking about George Sand in particular as an example of why a woman could not be a flaneuse. They were saying, look, she had to cross-dress in order to walk in the city. I, I quote from her autobiography, which is really wonderful, and I, I recommend you have a look at. It's like 10 volumes, but there isn't a bridge version that you can get a hold of. In her autobiography, she writes about how when she arrived in Paris, she'd left you know, her husband and her kids back on the estate at home um, in, in the countryside, and she moved to Paris, and it was just not sort of pragmatic to walk around the city in like flowing crinolines and little kid shoes. So for you know, purely logistical reasons, she borrowed her brother's boots, she got a pair of breeches, and she just discovered sort of by accident how amazing it was to run around Paris from one end to the other, and how... Um, freeing it was, she writes about feeling like an atom lost in the crowd, which is, to me, you know, the kind of purest Baudelarian definition of flannery. So, you know, I just sort of beg to differ. I don't think the fact that she's dressed like a boy makes her not a flaneuse, you know? There is this um, motif, or there's a a notion that runs throughout the book that you introduced early on with with Baudelaire, that the, the male flaneur is constantly spotting women in the crowd mm-hmm. and women on the street. And they have something in common, which is that they escape, mm-hmm. they disappear. They're somehow not graspable. You talk about the way that Hemingway, when he's sitting in a cafe and he sees a woman, he feels like he can all immediately mm. write her mm-hmm. story. He feels a kind of ownership. But actually, many of these writers are describing women who disappear around corners. Mm-hmm. They fade out. They're, they're somehow not, not attainable. And you see that later on in artists like uh, Lartigue Mm -hmm. photographing women uh, uh, as a boy. You'd said earlier in relation to that that quote from Luc Sant's book on on Paris, Mm -hmm. that you don't agree that the flaneur or the flaneuse Mm -hmm. has a kind of invisibility, but there's a play of visibility Mm -hmm. and invisibility, isn't there? Yeah, there's there's a sense in which it, you know, 
what I really tried to avoid doing in the book is giving any kind of prescriptive, this is how women should be in cities. This is the sort of liberating way for women to walk the, the streets. Um, we should be visible or we should be invisible. It sort of depends on, you know, for men and women alike, what do you, what do you like? Some women like to sort of stand out and receive male attention. And certainly over the course of a woman's life, you know, the attention can peak and then wane. And when it wanes, it's like, oh, where did it go? I really, you know, really miss that. So there's a sense in which it really is up to, you know, the individual, like the degree to which they want to register in the landscape, whatever their their gender. I think for, in the case of Baudelaire, for instance, it's more a question, I mean, we were talking about Wolf downstairs and, and street hunting and the way in which she, she is also kind of spotting women who, you know, elude her. She's spotting all kinds of people who elude her, but I think the, the difference, and Wolf talks about this in, in one of her essays, she calls it the difference of view, that writing as a woman or looking as a woman um, is coming out of a specific experience of having been looked at or having been written a certain way. Um, and Baudelaire, I think, is writing sort of from the center of culture, having never been gendered male, just sort of being, you know, universal I. Um, and so Wolf is sort of claiming that space or claiming that right to look in Street Haunting in that essay, um, where she, she says, you know, she doesn't speak about the, the, the street haunter in gendered terms. She says, you know, one, she uses the word one a lot, although it's clear that she herself is a woman and is writing from that perspective. Um, she says one steps out of one's house and leaves behind all of the things that make us ourselves, all the things we've bought and selected, and then we become just one vast, uh, anonymous, observing I, E-Y-E, because um, Wolf is so often writing against this monolithic, you know, I, capital I, in, in, all, in all of her work. Um, so there is this kind of, I think, feminist gesture in Wolf's work at reclaiming the right to walk and look and perceive. She has a, there's an extraordinary phrase in there about the a, a kind of um, perceptive oyster. Oh. The idea that the, the walker is this kind of absolutely sensitive and vulnerable mm-hmm. yeah. uh, figure. But she's, it's also, I mean, th- this is where our grand tour of the cities completely breaks down. We, <laughs> we might as well tunnel through from one uh, to, a, to another and end up in London for a while. Um, there's a kind of sense in that essay that she's both, she's kind of announcing this vulnerability and openness mm-hmm. to what she sees and to the other people that she sees, um, including this very strange moment where she's in a shoe shop and she sees this person that she describes as a dwarf, who's this kind of enigmatic thing that, person, figure that undoes mm-hmm. somehow her vision of the, the city. But therefore, she's also extremely judgmental, right? And the, yeah. there's an element, maybe, is it particular in the, um, the history of, of London walkers, um, an element of class? Ah, wolf and class. <laughs> that's, that's the big question. Um, there is something, yeah, sort of disturbing about her, her sort of relationship to I mean, there's there's like some some bums she passes getting drunk and and but she, and there's like an old an old bearded Jew who's like you know hunger bitten something like that. Um, she is very othering. Like there is the dwarf, there is the Jew, there are the bums. They are distinct and different from me. But I think I mean this is it's my my sort of recuperative gesture for Wolf is that she's at least attempting to think 
through their subjective experience of the world, she sees that you know the dwarf, quote unquote, in in the shoe shop, and asks explicitly, "What is it to be a dwarf? What is it like?" She tries to imagine, you know, the, this this woman being very proud of her her feet, which are the size of a full grown woman. This is all Wolf's terminology, and how proud the woman is of her feet, and she models the shoes and shows them off to her friends. So I think there's that weird kind of, it's a double bind, I think, for Wolf of wanting to understand and write about people whose lives she can't even begin to mm. comprehend. Um, but I think we have to you know, give her credit for trying and for attempting to bridge that divide. Baudelaire sort of doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I asked ask partly not only to judge Wolf mm-hmm. for in, in for, you know obviously predictable ter- class terms, but to kind of raise a question about you know in some ways your book is about a writing I mm-hmm. I not yeah. E Y E yeah um, because it's your first person description of living in certain cities, exploring certain cities, being observed and observing in cities, but it's also in a way a book about the way that these women writers have seen and described other women walkers mm. in mm-hmm. the city. And Wolf seems a good example of that. I wonder whether the photographers in the book, mm-hmm. um, because the book begins and ends with, with photographs, mm-hmm. you never at any point sort of explicitly say photography is a kind of fertile field in which mm-hmm. to, you know, the, there isn't a kind of polemic or, or argument, an argument about this. It's just woven through the book that mm-hmm. there is something to do with the way that women photographers move through the city. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about Helen Levitt, who photographed many, many women sitting on steps and stoops in New York, Mm -hmm. as if they they survey and, to some degree, kind of control the street scene in a way that Jane Jacobs Mm -hmm. describes uh, in the 60s. Um, Is that, was that part of what you're trying to describe Mm -hmm. here? Because the, the flaneur, the male tradition, is also very much about an eye mm-hmm. surrounded by mysterious figures. Is there a difference with the writers that you're writing mm-hmm. about that they are somehow more collaborative with mm. the figures that they see around them? These women who sit on stoops, the, mm-hmm. the homeless women uh, in Wolf and mm-hmm. so on. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think somewhere in Sontag she says that the, the photographer is the born flaneur, right? Um, so there is this kind of innate association um, culturally with, with flannery and with photography, or certainly with street photography, you know, street, street photographers today, you know, sort of stalking the city, looking for their, their prey and then capturing their image. There's something about that, like, image taking, which is really tempting, I think, to Mariana Breslauer, who, who, you know, walked with her friend Walter Benjamin in the, in the passage and, you know, around the arcades in Paris and, I think I saw a show um, about his, his documents in Paris a couple of years ago. It was like his archive, the Walter Benjamin archive that was on at the Jewish Museum in Paris. And there were a lot of her photographs exhibited next to his writings and his sort of bits and pieces of the Arcades project. And so it was interesting to sort of give the scopic view of the city over to Mariana Breslauer to sort of complement the writing that we had um, from Benjamin. But what I write about sort of in the end of the introduction, I think, was the sort of imaginative leap that you have to take in imagining these women's relationship to the city because it's just very difficult to find lots of archival material, letters, diaries um, of women talking about, other than, you know, the writers and artists who obviously leave, like, we, we know about Wolf's diary, we've 
she's she's made it through the the net of history. But other women, sort of everyday women who weren't necessarily writers or artists, or maybe they were, but not like Wolf, didn't get through like Wolf. Um, what did they think of the city? How did they capture the city? There's this kind of leap that you have to take to imagine what their view might have been. So I, I talk about the images in my mind's eye, you know, moments when Reese was walking in the city that she didn't document in her autobiography or her letters or, you know, her novels, which are adapted from her own sort of raw material of her life. So, yeah, I think in terms of photography's role in the book, it's it's definitely an implicit rather than, rather than explicit gesture at um, suggesting that we women's archives are somewhat limited as as they stand right now, but we have to sort of take that imaginative leap um, to picture what what a woman would have felt, you know, walking in the streets of whatever city. Is part of that your own writing of fiction? Because it's one of the things that you describe in the book as a moment where you're writing a novel. Mm-hmm. This is where we somehow we join back up with our, our grand tour yes. and, and head now to Venice. In Venice. <laughs> um, where partly what's happening in the Venice chapter, because it's different from the other cities because it's not mm-hmm. a city that you lived in. Mm. Partly what's happening is that you are following, to some degree, Sophie Cal mm-hmm. in her great work, Sweet Venetienne. Mm-hmm. Partly you're researching a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly you are simply a flaneuse at that point. <laughs> yeah. Can you describe what's happening in Venice? Um, is it yeah. partly ab- about that, that leap of mm-hmm. imagination? Yeah, I, yeah, that probably most explicitly because I had to sort of imagine this world into being uh, for this novel that I wrote that's set in Venice. And as a writer, I'm just very dependent on place. Um, I love a novel like Jeanette Winterson's The Passion, which she wrote without having ever visited Venice. Um, and and it's amazing, it's astounding, but that's not how I work. Like, I need, I, I, I need to sort of see the world and then, you know, turn it into something on the page that's just how my brain works, I guess. I needed to sort of tramp around Venice to figure out how this novel could actually take shape, you know, where I could set, situate all of the different, you know, there's a, there's a secret synagogue in this novel. Sort of embarrassing to say all these years later, but at the time I was dead set on writing this novel about a secret synagogue. And so, you know, in Venice is a place that doesn't have basements for maybe obvious reasons. Um, so where would you, where, where could you hide a synagogue in a city that's very small and circumscribed and all of the spaces are sort of known to, you know, the, the, the powers that be. So, yeah, it was, it felt a bit, you often see writing on um, the flaneur and the, the detective figure. And so this felt a bit like I was in novelist detective mode. But it, it's also um, a particularly charged chapter because it raises more than the others the question of following and right. what it means to be uh, a follower. Mm-hmm. Um, and you describe Cal, who, for people who don't know that work, met a man at an art opening in Paris, heard him say that he was going traveling to Venice the next day, right? And she just decides to follow him. And the work, which is text and photographs, comes out of the uh, following. You, you describe uh, that work in terms of the kind of value or uses of mm-hmm. passivity. Mm-hmm. That you, In fact, you say that it's almost a kind of daughterly mm-hmm. uh, act to follow this man around. That seems a particularly charged way of describing a woman following a man around. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, can you say something about mm-hmm. following in general mm. uh, in the book? That, that's the yeah. moment where it becomes most. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Obvious mm-hmm. and, and interesting, but... Yeah, that comes, you know, explicitly out of Cal's own writing about her father and, and her sort of sense of obedience toward him. Um, and so the, cha- the name of the chapter is Obedience. It was, I was writing this novel at a time when I was meant to be writing my PhD dissertation, so it felt like I was being disobedient in you know, just writing this novel instead of doing the work I was meant to be doing. But yeah, it is, for Cal, I mean, it's such a, a, an amazing way of turning the tables on the figure of the flaneur to, to you know, occupy the role of the, the, the one who looks, the one who tracks, the one who follows. There's that famous um, scene in Mrs. Dalloway where Peter Walsh is sort of you know, following this woman around and imagining all these things about her and kind of fantasizing about her. And that's the classic Baudelairean, like, you know, master of the gaze woman sort of is the object of the gaze. But Cal reverses that and, you know, imagines herself in love with this man who she's never met. You know, it sort of builds up this whole extremely charged, extremely fraught relationship. But it is a way of sort of subverting that idea of following or stalking and, and turning it into a position of power. You know, stalkers are very scary. It's like, you know, I'm sure this man was very unsettled once he realized that there was a strange woman following him around Venice. Like, who does that? It's it's so unacceptable. So Cal is really kind of veering off the sort of acceptable, this is what you are meant to do with your life, this is how you become an artist, this is how you become, you know, a functioning member of society, and, and sort of saying, no, I'm going to do this really unheard of thing. The, the idea of passivity and, and the Flannes was, first came up when I was writing about Reese, because Jean Reese is someone who, you know, lots of people have just a really tough time with, because she's, she, her, her characters, it's like hard to, hard to watch them, um, do the things that they do to themselves and the way they have such a very hard time functioning in society and it's just like oh honey like get a job you know or like say no to that guy don't bring him upstairs with you put down the bottle like snap out of it um it's very frustrating to read Reese I think for those reasons and so I got I became really interested in this idea of um passivity because obviously that's a that's sort of um a value that is, is very valued in women at the time that, that Reese is writing, and yet we're sort of condemning her at, out of hand at the same time for being passive. And she, so she sort of makes a game out of it, and after mm. leaving Mr. McKenzie, Julia is leaning on, leave, like sort of laying down in her bed, and she thinks, if, if I hear a car honk, like I'll kill myself. If no car honks, I won't kill myself, you know? Just giving yourself over to fate, that's like the utter um, gesture of passiveness, but there's something kind of weirdly subversive in that. Mm-hmm. 
I don't recommend it, you know. But <laughs> uh, in terms of following um, the Tokyo chapter, which is mm. the most directly autobiographical, not in the sense that it has the most uh, autobiographical content, but mm -hmm. it's most autobiographical to the exclusion of other things. Mm -hmm. So you're not in that chapter writing about other writers mm -hmm. exploring Tokyo or artists or whoever. It's about a particular sort of passivity, mm -hmm. isn't it? Your own. Um, yes. And finding yourself having followed a man from Paris mm -hmm. to Tokyo. What's the kind of flannery that can happen in that mm. context? Because it's extremely curtailed mm -hmm. and constrained, isn't it? Yeah. I found Tokyo to be a very difficult city to walk in. And, and that's because I was approaching it as if it were like Paris or New York or Venice, sort of there laid out, ready to be walked. Um, and the neighborhood that we were staying in, Rupongi, <laughs> it's like the, they call it the Gaijin ghetto, like the, the foreigners ghetto. Um, it's sort of made up of all of these highways and flyovers and it's all kind of concrete and it's just unlovely. And as a sort of American raised in the suburbs and, you know, having fallen in love with Paris, I had a very specific, very bourgeois idea of what was like beautiful in cities. And Tokyo just upended that and made it, I mean, it just wasn't what I thought I wanted. And so it took me a really long time to come to see the, you know, the, what was interesting and, and, I don't know, challenging in a good way, in a productive way about Tokyo. So I spent a lot of Tokyo just inside in the air conditioning, <laughs> you know, up on the 26th floor or whatever. So Tokyo in a way, because the book starts with you growing up in Long Island, mm -hmm. um, where you're describing essentially, in a way, a similar experience of space, mm -hmm. right? That, that you move from interior to interior. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like mostly through the, the, the interior of your car, you know, like my, when my parents call me now and they say, oh God, it's so hot. The summer in New York is so hot. We're dying. It's like, yeah, but you go from your air conditioned house to your air conditioned car to your air conditioned office, you know, and back again, like, when are you really outside? So yeah, it, it, it was the, the sort of arc of the book comes out of this feeling of, um, being so constrained in interiors and not being able to sort of walk with, with, I don't know, you couldn't walk anywhere on Long Island, or at least in the town that I'm from, in the suburbs. And that was a real problem for me. It was a real kind of, I just felt like I had no, no autonomy, no independence, no freedom, just utterly dependent on other people to drive me around. And then when I, you know, learned to drive, then my parents would let me take their car, but, you know, it was their car. So, you know, when I moved to the city, that was the first time that I really could just do what I wanted, go where I wanted, and then to be in Tokyo, where I felt like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't maneuver. And, yeah, and then, then you know, projected that sort of um, frustration onto the relationship, and it crumbled. But, you know, what can you do? Of, of the cities, New York, I guess, is the other one in the book where you're not, in fact, talking about so many other mm -hmm. writers. Um, Joan Didion appears very late, mm -hmm. um, and she appears writing about leaving New York mm -hmm. in the famous uh, essay. Um, there is, of course, a long history of women writing about the city, and mm -hmm. what there's a sentence that, that sprung immediately to mind as I was reading, which is from uh, Elizabeth Hardwick's mm -hmm. Sleepless Nights, where she says, a woman's city, New York, because mm -hmm. she's referring to homeless women on the street, the mm -hmm. women who sit out in the stoops, uh, etc., I wonder, I was also thinking about um, Kenneth Goldsmith's recent uh, anthology, mm -hmm. uh, Capital, of writing about New York, which has astonishingly few women mm -hmm. in it. 
And I wonder if the reason that there is not so much of that in your book is... Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder why. Um, not so much of what in my th- book? There are not so many of those touchstones in the way that there mm-hmm. are in Paris. Um, or there, there, there isn't a sort of sense that you can follow particular mm-hmm. artists or women particularly uh, mm-hmm. in the city, either early on mm-hmm. um, or at the moment at the end of the book when you, when you return. Sorry, you mean in terms of like not writing about that many women? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that had to do with the um, the sort of form of the book mm. when I first pitched this. <laughs> uh, when it was in its earliest version, it was a kind of straight up nonfiction book about the Flanners right. with the kind of you know introduction that would be like literature review and then chapters that would focus on specific women. And then as it took shape at Shadow. I was encouraged to bring in more and more of my own sort of living and walking in cities. And to a certain extent, I was, you know, happy to go along with that and to sort of frame it um, in a a perspective on the city rather than being this kind of omniscient, you know, literary critical voice or literary historian's voice. But then as that, as the chapters took shape under the sort of need to write about myself and my relationship to these women it became increasingly difficult to write about a wide variety of women because I had to sort of find a way to connect with them. I really had wanted to write a chapter on Nella Larson um, on passing and to sort of, I don't know, it, to, to bring the book up to Harlem a bit, mm-hmm. um, which is where it sort of, I go to school, I went to school at Columbia, which is, you know, very close to Harlem, but very few Columbia students sort of venture above 125th mm-hmm. Street. And so that was a place where I did a lot of walking. Um, but it just felt like I couldn't, because of the impulse, or not the impulse, the sort of impetus to write about my own life, it felt sort of ethically wrong to be like, Nella Larson was passing, you know, between races, and I was passing for French. <laughs> like, no, just didn't work. It was really, right. yeah, it felt yeah. really wrong. Yeah, I, I wondered if, that, if, it, if it was simply much more difficult to write about a city that was more mm-hmm. yours more just in that way. limited in terms of, you know, which women I could sort of relate to. Yeah. So, yeah, once there was that narrative arc, the sort of memoir-driven mm. narrative arc, um, even if I'm wary of the word memoir, um, it just, it, it limited things a bit. The Tokyo chapter was meant to be about Heian women's writing. <laughs> right. Like 11th and 12th century, you know, because in the tale of Genji, there's this fascinating bit where his mother, um, who's like the emperor's favorite uh, concubine, um, so women in the tale of Genji, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this this tidbit, but they don't have names in the original Japanese. They're called by the names of the streets where they live. So Genji's mother is is the Rokuju lady, the Sixth Avenue lady, and she's sort of the emperor's favorite. And she gets hassled when she's walking back and forth from Sixth Avenue to the emperor's palace to such an extent that she just dies of like street harassment. Um, so I wanted to write about that, but then again, it just felt like such a very large leap from my life in 21st century Tokyo to, to this woman, fictional woman. We could, we, we could start to open up uh, to questions if you have questions. Um, there is a microphone roaming, uh, so stick your hand up um, and wait for the microphone to roam in your direction. There's one down the front here. Yeah, thank you. I thought that was a really interesting discussion, so thank, thank you for that. I, I just wanted to raise one thing about the, the male end of this, the, oh, yes, the, the Baudelairean flaneur. One thing that didn't come out to me in, in, in the way you were talking about the flaneur um, was that he was not so much 
uh, it wasn't so much a question of a controlling gaze in my view. It was there was a vulnerability and also a fear to some extent in, in the flanner. I'm going back to uh, the man in the crowd, mm-hmm. which Baudelaire obviously based his mm-hmm. his uh, conception on. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered whether whether you address that in the book, or and whether that in some way relates to the situation of the woman in the city. I mean, because it, ultimately the fun is navigated by the city mm-hmm. rather than in control himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the really interesting thing about that that Edgar Allan Poe story, the man in the crowd, is that he's. Um, He's, he's convalescing. He's just been very ill. And so his sort of take on things is, is unreliable. And what is this weird phantasmagoric world? Is it really happening? Do they really walk this far? Does he walk that far behind this man? So there, what I, what I talk about in, um, in the introduction is how very unstable the very notion of the flaneur is that we can't really agree on what it means. And when we do point to something like that story, it's so, I mean, is it, is the flaneur the man who follows or the man who is followed? It's so, if we can't really get ourselves straight on, on what the flaneur is, how can we then rule out a flaneur's, you know, if we're basing a flaneur's on the flaneur and the flaneur is an unstable figure, then what does that do to the flaneur's? So I do sort of talk about that a bit in the beginning and then leave it to the side, bracket it, and get on with the business of, of talking about, okay, so then what could a flaneur's be if she's not simply a female version of this unstable male figure. But yeah, I think that's such an important part of, of, um, of the Fenno is that vulnerability and that, you know, uncertainty. Yeah. I moved to Tel Aviv about five years ago. I lived mm. there for four years and I was like the ultimate flaneurs in Tel Aviv. Mm. Now I understand your definition. And it puts me in mind of literally the last page of Amos Oz's autobiography when he mm. talks about his mother mm-hmm. and the walk that she took right before she committed suicide through the streets of Tel Aviv. And I know with Virginia Woolf, obviously depression, suicide, kind of like huge, huge themes in her work, and also, I guess, in much of her planerserie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wondered how much you sort of thought about depression and mental illness generally when you thought about this theme. I think to the extent that, that I considered it, it was mainly in relation to Woolf and to Jean Rhys, who's another sort of interesting figure in that respect and to my own kind of there's there's a there's a there's a scene there's a nervous breakdown scene in in Paris when sort of yeah everything seemed to to be going very wrong um and there's this sense in which the city is both the the ideal scene for that and the worst place for it to happen I mean it you can feel incredibly um isolated in the midst of all these people who seem to be having lives that are better than yours and sort of Paris is a really interesting example of this because, you know, it's such a ritualized society. And when I first moved there, Sundays were very difficult because everyone would sort of have their family lunch, go to a museum, go to see a film. And it was very kind of performative in the ritual. And I didn't have a ritual to slot myself into. Um, But then the city was also the place that I turned to to sort of bring myself out of that and, you know, find ways to connect with the city on a Sunday afternoon and you know, go to the museum by myself. And I, I feel like I'm verging into Olivia's category here. I don't know if you've read um, Olivia Lang's book um, no. on loneliness. Um, I can't remember the, the Lonely City, I the think it's cities. called. Yeah, she, she takes this on sort of explicitly, so you should pick that up tonight too. <laughs> yeah. You quote Maeve Brennan at one point, and she oh, seems yeah. like a really good writer to think about uh, in terms of uh, a, kind of, a kind of depression or an almost mm-hmm. sort of 
mid-20th century neurasthenia. Mm. There's a moment where she, she ends up in a, in a restaurant in one of the um, New Yorker columns, and she's so disoriented by the city. She, she's so in such a such strange space in her head that she forgets which end of her broccoli on the plate she should oh, be right. eating. Yeah. You know, she doesn't know how to eat broccoli. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a very, a very, very precise observer of, of the kind of uh, psychical disarray mm-hmm. in New York. Other questions? I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your writing process. My writing process? Um, it really depends on the project, um, but this one was basically a question of looking at the sort of women I wanted to write about and, and finding my way into their stories and then finding a kind of governing idea that could kind of orient the chapter. So I imagined each chapter would be its own kind of standalone essay. I wanted it to function independently, so I hope, I hope that they do. But, you know, like there, for the, the Sophie Cal chapter, it's, a, it's all about obedience. And then I sort of trace that thematic through my life and through Sophie Cal's own sort of projects and writings. Next chapter after that is the one where I followed my ex-boyfriend to Tokyo. And so that's called Inside. So it's sort of oriented around exteriors. And so it's really just a question of gener- generating as much material as I possibly can in terms of my own writing and my research and then finding ways to streamline it together and, you know, whittle it down and make it sort of as lean as possible, having integrated all of that. I hope that doesn't sound too, I don't know, too vague. But it's a question of, I mean, it's because I'm a researcher by nature, I think. You read everything you can, it, you kind of absorb that somehow, and then it kind of infuses what you do af- after that. There's a, a kind of unacademic, though, fragmentary mm-hmm. structure as yeah. well, with, within each chapter. Yeah. I'm happiest when I can be fragmentary. (laughs) I heard you say a few times you didn't want to use the word memoir, and I'm just wondering how do we talk about first-person non-fiction work beyond memoir? Mm -hmm. Uh, Thinking of Lang, Duval. Do you guys have another word, or were you you advised by Jindo to to write a memoir here? I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about that. I think my, my, my... Hesitation with it is because I, I was much more interested in, in the figure of the Flanners and in these women than in myself. But then I also found it to be, I mean, this is a sort of general belief of mine that, you know, even in my academic work, I think it's important to sort of be articulate about where I'm coming from and, you know, to sort of situate the criticism from a perspective. So that, that was the sort of, not, not, excuse but that was the way that I let myself let myself into the text it felt like if I could use my own kind of wanderings and writings and whatever meanderings as a way into writing about Wolf or writing about Reese then then it would have, it would have a place there but I don't know if there's another term that we could use instead of memoir I'm really into this kind of like hybrid writing that is starting to get a lot of attention here that's sometimes being called autofiction um, but I don't think that that term quite goes far enough um, in capturing the kind of essayistic meandering that you see in work like Ali Smith's or, or Chris Krause's. Um, so I tend to like the the descriptor essayistic, but that doesn't mm. replace memoir yet. I don't know how you how you come in on that. Um, I'm writing a book about the essay, mm. so I'm I'm going to call it essay. Okay. Um, but but <laughs> I, I understand the, the the urge to to shy away from yeah. uh, memoir. But it would be, we were discussing before we started that it would be nice just not to have to call mm-hmm. things by these names. Right, exactly. Um, and, and some people get away with that, yeah. I think. And I think that we should, we should take heart from that and, and 
and resist mm -hmm. and, and just, it's writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the category for this kind of nonfiction in France is, is essay. You know, if, if it's published mm. in France, I don't know mm. if it will be. Hopefully it will be, be called, called an essay. Mm. So that would be kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah, so let's go with essay. You mentioned briefly um, that there was that person, I can't remember her name, but who dressed up as a boy oh, um, to go yeah. on her wanderings. Um, could you talk a bit about clothing? Because obviously most women are really interested in clothes and kind of footwear. Did that come into mm -hmm. it at all when you were writing? Oh, yes. Well, footwear is very important to the flannels. <laughs> you can't go flannelsing around in stripper heels. George Sand is a really interesting example of that because um, at the time when she was dressing like a boy, it was actually, well, at, not just at the time, it is actually still illegal in France for women to wear trousers. Um, it's one of those stupid laws that, you know, we can joke about, like, at Oxford, you're allowed to ask for a tankard of ale with your final exam or something like that, or whatever, you have to be wearing a sword, I don't know. Um, all these, you know, arcane laws that we don't obey anymore. It's still on the books in France that you that women are not permitted to wear trousers. And if you wanted to wear trousers in the 19th century, you could apply. You could like file a request with the emperor uh, to to wear trousers, and he would, you know, whoever was in charge of considering this request would think it over and ask at what event did you want to do this, and you know, make sure that there would be no young people around. So there was something really kind of subversive in, in Sand's action, not just because of you know, how romantic it sounds to us, like, oh, she was, she was flouting you know, gender norms of the day. She was actually flouting the law as well as gender norms. So yeah, I think you know, clothing is, is obviously a, a sort of key element in, in the way in which we all present ourselves to the world and is at the heart of the ways in which women's appearance in public is controlled um, and policed and, you know, like we, that we even have a term like slut shaming. I think it should be a great, great shame to our culture in general. Um, again, I, I'm wary of, of wading into a sort of like prescriptive stance and saying women should or shouldn't dress one way or another. I think it's wonderful when you see movements that, that want to reclaim a woman's right to wear whatever the hell she wants, you know, to go topless if she wants or, you know, to, to wear an incredibly short skirt. Um, but I don't think that a short skirt is necessarily like a, a declaration of independence in itself. You know, I think clothing is, is a very charged sort of field. Um, sorry, I'm like a little bit hazy from the cold medicine. It's starting to come over me. So I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to look back to, to women like Sand and see, you know, how they were using clothing as a way not just to sort of declare their independence, but to say, like, you know, this is just the most pragmatic choice for, for, for what I need to do. You very nicely uh, distance yourself from the Gore-Tex wearing psycho Oh, gosh, uh, yeah, the Gore-Tex. Maybe they're a particular Anglo fraternity. I wondered if you could say something about the evolution of the flanners and what it means today to be a flanners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's. Eh, I'm. I'm so again. I'm God. I'm. I'm such an academic. I'm like hedging everything I say. I'm sorry. I. I'm wary again of saying like this is what a flanners is today because it's so specific to time and place and you know culture. Um, I think that my sort of aim with the book was to sort of invent, well, to take this term and then in, imagine a sort of array of subversive ways in which women have intervened in space. 
and how that's been meaningful to various writers and artists over time. Um, so the sort of flaneurs of today, I think it's really, you know, up to all of you. And my, my ideal flaneurs isn't even necessarily a woman. You know, it's sort of anyone who feels like they don't quite fit in the space that they're walking through and is trying to become okay with that and notice the way that feels and notice the way that the space that they're moving through is a sort of field of prescriptions um, and the way in which they're sort of defying um, whatever the, the sort of affective charge is, you know. So I, I guess, yeah, there's there's no sort of simple answer to it. It's more just like the spirit of... The spirit of Flanderzuri is the spirit of boundarylessness and of sort of intervening in spaces, um, but also of being prepared for the fact that those spaces may push back against you in ways that can be, you know, sort of horrifying. I think we're living in a particularly violent time. This is, you know, obviously kind of the summer of apocalypse. It's important not to overlook that many of the violences that we're currently um, observing um, have been perpetrated against women, and then those have been erased in all sorts of ways. I mean, I was at the Wolf Conference in Leeds in June, the day that Joe Cox was murdered, and I think, I prefer to think that we're just in such a state of shock that no one brought it up, but, I mean, no one brought it up. We were talking about it amongst ourselves, but it was not mentioned in any kind of official way. So I think that might have just been, you know, a coping mechanism, but it also sort of speaks volumes to the fact that it was, like, so shocking that we couldn't speak of it, but then it was also just immediately absorbed into our sense of, like, well, these are the things that happen, you know? So I think, you know, not to sort of, I don't know, build build flanusery into the... I, don't, I hate to connect the two. I don't mean for that to sound like at all sort of using politics to promote a book, but um, I've been so appalled by by actions like, like this one. Um, and so I think that's... I'm just sort of trying to call attention to how um, uh, complicated it is when women show themselves in public and how risky that can be. It seems to me that the book, one of the things the book does at the end is to open up uh, a set of political questions yeah. without um, attempting to insert yourself mm-hmm. overly wi- within those, without wanting to claim mm-hmm. uh, things for yourself that, that, that you might shy away from. But it certainly opens up mm-hmm. a whole set of questions about immigration, about women in the contemporary city, and mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. So um, shall we finish there? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.